Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Halfway Expert. I'm Dr. Paul Moffat. I have a PhD in medieval literature and an unending curiosity about all kinds of things. After I finished my PhD, I had a feeling that I now had the skills to become an expert in any topic. That feeling passed. But every episode of Halfway Expert, I do my best to give it a shot. Every episode, I spend a week researching a topic I am not an expert in. Then I invite an actual expert to come on and set me straight. That makes me a halfway expert. And this week, I'm joined by Louise Arnal, hydrologist at the University of Reading. Hi. Hello, Louise. Hi, Paul. Before we really begin, let me tell you a bit about yourself. You are a PhD candidate in hydrology at the University of Reading. Yep. You have a BSc in earth sciences and a master's degree in hydrology with the same focus as the PhD you're working on now. More or less. Yep. You, more or less. You call yourself a sci artist and you have a blog, sciartfloods.wordpress.com, where you have a gallery of mostly flood-themed art. Yep. You're interested in science communication in general, but especially through art. Your first degree is in earth sciences. And earth sciences is a general categorization of all kinds of science related to the planet Earth. That is, it's Earth the planet, not Earth the substance. <laughs> Geology is an earth science too, though. Uh, but your specialization it became water, not Earth. And you did an MSc in hydrology in Amsterdam. In the course of your MSc, you did an internship at uh, Delta Res, yeah. which is an independent research institute focused on water. That's correct. In that internship, you worked on flood forecasting, and that led you to what you're working on now, which is a PhD at the University of Reading in the Department of Geography and Environmental Science, focusing on identifying the dominant sources of uncertainty to improve seasonal stream flow forecasting over Europe. We will get back to exactly what that means in a second. Uh, in your ad adult life, you've lived in Paris, Amsterdam, now England. It seems like you enjoy moving around and traveling. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, <laughs> and you're born in France. And uh, si tu veux, on peut faire cette interview en français. Ah, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe English is better for my science vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> also, I don't, I wouldn't uh, count okay. on our l listeners understanding the French. <laughs> I'm just doing some pointless showing off. I, as a Canadian, uh, I grew up in the part of Canada where there was a lot of French. So, though I speak French Canadian, and if you are, have ever heard France, French is very front of the mouth. It's like, bonjour, je parle français. Yeah, yeah, and that's true. Canadian French is very nasal. Yeah. It's like, bonjour, je parle français. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite hard to understand for us French from France. <laughs> <laughs> In addition to your PhD work at the University of Reading, you also work at the ECMWF, which is the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts in the forecast department. Yeah. The ECMWF is a research institute and operational service that produces global numerical weather predictions. Numerical weather prediction 
is a description of the methods, not the result. It doesn't mean that they come out with uh, the weather today <laughs> is a 27. Uh, it's the method and it means the predictions arise from mathematical models of the atmosphere and the ocean, etc., to predict what's going to happen. Numerical weather prediction, by the way, has only really been viable since we've had computers powerful enough to do the necessary calculations, because the more data we can analyze, the more accurate the prediction is going to be, and the amount of data necessary to make a prediction that's really worth making is uh, a lot. Yeah. A lot of data. Um, so, is that a uh, fair picture of you? Yeah, it is, actually. Um Maybe can I add two little things? Absolutely. To this? Okay. Uh, I worked for one year before starting my PhD at the ECMWF. Okay. Um, so that's a dark side of my past. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh yeah, I'm doing my PhD as part of the Imprex Horizon 2020 project. Right. And I saw that as I was researching. I'm... Uh... The Imprex Horizon 2020 project is like a, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a project that a lot of different scientists are working together on as a, and it has to do with uh, forecasting in Europe. Yeah. And hydrological extremes, all kinds. Hydrological extremes. Okay. Um, I think we'll get back to hydrological extremes in a second also. Okay. So now it's time for field notes where I we talk a bit about your general field. What is hydrology? Now, I assume that most listeners are smart enough to figure out even if they don't already know that hydrology is about water, uh, but they're not experts like you and I. Mm -hmm. So let's start at the beginning. Hydrology is an earth science that is focused on water, specifically the distribution, occurrence, movement, and properties of the waters on earth. Globally, the hydrologic system is closed because there's a finite amount of water on earth, but many subsystems exist, and typically hydrologists focus on, one, on subsystems rather than all the water in the entire earth. Um, Important ideas for hydrology in general is the idea of the hydrological budget, which is in simple terms, input minus outflow equals delta S, where delta S is measured in volume per time, like cubic meters per second. And that's how you know what is happening with the change in the amount of water within a hydrological subsystem. You want to pay attention to things like precipitation, surface runoff, groundwater flow, evaporation, transpiration, uh, and that's a, a more detailed version of the hydrological budget is precipitation minus surface runoff minus groundwater flow minus evaporation minus transpiration equals delta S. Also important in the hydrological Budget is the idea of infiltration. Infiltration is uh, water that doesn't leave the system but infiltrates into it by entering soil moisture storage. So if the soil is wet, there's water in it mm -hmm. and it's being stored in the water. And also in the groundwater reservoir, 
system. So the <laughs> water in the ground has, is, is a reservoir. There's, you know, caves and holes and uh, systems under the water that where water under the ground where water just sits. And then also uh, we need to be aware of depressions, which is anything from a puddle to a lake, a uh, bowl, a depression in the land where water can sit above ground rather than in a groundwater reservoir. Or a river, I guess. Is a river a depression? This is something I wasn't clear on. I guess it must be, right? I guess so. It's just flowing. I've never called it called it that way, but I guess it would be. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, because of the scale involved, things that might seem negligible to a layperson are very significant when we're talking about the hydrological budget. So like the amount of water absorbed into the riverbed instead of flowing along the river might be something that uh, we wouldn't a layperson might not even consider, but because of the scale, it's going to make a difference in the hydrological budget to be aware of these kinds of things. I think of it like uh, making a pancake recipe for four people and then trying to make the same recipe for 4,000 people. <laughs> you can't just multiply all the quantities by 4,000. So the, the differences that are insignificant on a tiny scale, the kind of scale that most people live their daily lives on, become massive on a massive scale. And that's one of the reasons why accurately measuring the input and outflow in a hydrological system is so important and also so difficult because a small thing overlooked or inaccurately measured or unmeasurable mm -hmm. makes the whole picture inaccurate. Yeah. So <laughs> hydrology is a big field. Um, some of the kind of sub fields to be aware of. Uh, there's chemical hydrology, which specializes in the chemical characteristics of water, by which we mean not just that water is H2O, but that uh, assessing whether a specific water source is drinkable, for example, or the acidity of a specific water source. Uh, this is chemical hydrology. Uh, Eco-hydrology focuses specifically on how water impacts living things, how plants and animals adapt to the water of their particular ecosystem, and then how the water cycle is impacted by the presence of plants and animals, for example. Hydrogeology focuses on groundwater, which really for lay people means underground water. Um, and, okay, I, I know a hydrogeology joke. Would you like to hear it? Sure. What is the difference between a hydrologist and a hydrogeologist? Um, the ground, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the hydrogeologist is the one who thinks water flows uphill. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and this is my test to see. See, I, I don't know whether you're laughing to be polite or whether when you know what you're talking about, that's funny. No, that's really funny, actually. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it. My dad did environmental assessments before he retired mm -hmm. and he I sometimes would go in as a kid to like uh you know take your kid to work day or whatever yeah and part of environmental assessments is consulting with hydrogeologists he would 
so he'd have hydrogeologists in the office and they one of them had that joke like on a taped on his door really and I was must have been like seven or eight but I still remember it even though I didn't really understand it Ah. (laughs) (laughs) and now you understand it (laughs) now I understand it because water flows downhill because of gravity but underground you can think of it as uh a little bit like if you had a vase full of pebbles and you start filling it with water, the water comes down to the bottom of the vase, but then it starts filling up the vase from the bottom. So water flows uphill underground because it goes it goes from places where there's lots of water to places where there's less, and that means it moves up. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I think. <laughs> Thank you. Um, isotope hydrology uses isotopes to estimate the date and origin of water. So you can uh, identify like a particular bit of water and how old it is and where it came from. And this allows us to know how water moves over a very long time scale, which can also enable us, for example, to predict the diffusion of pollution. Uh, Surface hydrology is focused on water on the surface, the transfer of water along the Earth's surface. And hydrometeorology, that is your focus, pays attention and focuses on the transfer of water and energy from the surface to the lower atmosphere and back. So not just will it rain, but this amount of rain will impact the surface hydrology in this specific way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. We can also think about a division uh, along practical lines. And I seems to me like, broadly speaking, some hydrologists focus on describing what water is doing right now. Some focus on predicting or forecasting what it's going to do later. And some focus on controlling so that it does what they want it to do. So like hydrological engineers work out systems to make water flow and behave in ways that they want it to. Your focus is on predictive hydrology or forecasting hydrology, which is using what we know, specifically using what we know about stream flow to predict what's going to happen in the future, not on engineering hydrology, which is using what we know about how water works to control the stream flow by building dikes and channels and reservoirs and etc. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And then there's also another kind of three parts to the whole picture I think, even within a particular field. And that's uh, part one, data collection. Um, So you can't make uh, reasonable and informed uh, forecasting and prediction unless you have data about what's currently happening. So data collection involves field work where... uh, Someone might go out and measure how much snow there is or uh, use a stream gauge to measure the velocity of a stream. A stream gauge is a device that like you stick in the water and it measures how fast the water is moving by a propeller that spins and sends the information to a computer that averages the velocity for as long as the sensor's in the water. That's uh, one of the more sophisticated techniques to do it. I've done less sophisticated ones when I was a student. <laughs> and you can, I mean, like, you can also 
the oldest kind of stream gauge uh, invented, or the oldest example we have of it being used in practice is Leonardo da Vinci uh, took a, like a stick tied to a string and walked along next to it singing a song uh, so that he knew he could tell whether another stream was going faster than it because it moved faster than the song. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's cool. And people don't generally use the song anymore, but they do, like, you can use a float, which is basically the same idea, something that floats and you move alongside the stream and you time how long it takes to get from plate point A to point B, and that's the velocity of the stream. Right? Yeah, or putting uh, some kind of color in water that doesn't harm uh, any animals living in the water, by the way, and then you just go to right. the other side of the river and see when it arrives there. Uh, that's a color in the water. I didn't read about that one, but that's pretty smart. <laughs> it kind of scares people. <laughs> it's like you're you're yeah dying the river. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure there you know what you use a chemical. If you have any uh, expertise in chemical hydrology, you could be confident that what we're putting in isn't going to do any damage. Yeah. Um. The, the problem with the float, of course, is that the surface of the water might be moving at a different velocity from the depths of the water. So a, a dye in the water seems to me like it would be give you better data because it the water deeper down uh, is also dyed. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then another part of data collection is historical data collection and st storage. Uh, so it's important for future understandings to compare it to and to have access to all the data that's been collected in the past. Mm -hmm. Then step two is uh, mathematical model analysis. So taking the data and using it in mathematical models or in analysis to, for any number of different purposes. Uh, that's what you mostly do, not going up. You did, you have a video of, I think this was the video that you were, you were talking and your mom was painting, where you say, I'm, I don't go up to the top of the uh, mountain and measure the snow. I stay behind my computer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that illustrates it quite well. <laughs> I wish I could go measure the snow. That, by the way, I really enjoyed that video. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So the... Uh, and then the third step is interpretation. So like you do the mathematical modeling, you know, for example, you know, low flow area has expanded from 10% of the river network to 41%. I don't know what that means. So that's another part of hydrology is explaining and interpreting what these numbers mean in practical terms. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you think we're missing to get a picture of what hydrology is? Hmm. So I was thinking the last step you have is in interpreting the data, let's say, that you get. Mm -hmm. um, but I think interpreting and then making practical use of the data or of the forecast you have is yet another step, probably. Okay. Um, because that's quite complicated. Right. Okay. Uh, do you mean like um, actually like the uh, 
engineering side? Or do you mean like suggesting what the practical applications might be? Yeah, for example, uh, so not the engineering. I mean, it could be, I guess. Uh, but for example, um, a team that looks at the forecast and then says, all right, there might be a flood. Let's put uh, flood defenses up or something. Right. So making this decision. Right. Not just saying there might be a flood, but what do what what do we do? Should we yeah, do about that? Exactly. Right. And it can be about <laughs> floods sense. or reservoirs or yeah, whatever. <laughs> All right. Hydrology, as I said, is a massive field. So I, we've got a bit of a picture, I think, though, of what it means, especially. Um, I mean, we're already starting to specialize in uh, surface and hydrometeorology and not so much in what all the steps of what a chemical hydrologist would uh, go through in what I just described. Um, yeah, true. That's kind of a forecasting chain here that you described, yeah. more or less. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was researching because that's what you specialize in. This is, I should yeah. maybe say... My little introduction at the start of the show is kind of a lie because I say I pick a topic and then invite a, and then research it and then invite a person. But actually, I invite the person first and then I tailor what <laughs> I research to what the person's an expert in. Uh, I didn't just like search throughout the world for someone who's an expert in the things I had already researched. Um, <laughs> that would take more than a week, I think. It would. <laughs> <laughs> So now it's time for You're the Expert, about your specific specialization. Your specialization in hydrology is hydrometeorology. So that is, uh, hydrometeorology is about forecasting. Hydrometeorological forecasts are about forecasting where the water is going to be. Because the global water system is closed and linked, the specific subsystem can be defined in a number of different ways, like geologically or according to uh, drainage basin, basins or catchment areas or according to political boundaries. Um, it seems to me like catchment areas is usually the way hydrologists prefer to think because it makes a fair amount of logical sense as an organizing system. So a catchment area is like a, a body of water and everything that drains into that body of water. Uh, or in North American uh, uh, language, we sometimes call that a watershed. The watershed has a more specific technical meaning outside of North America than that. So catchment area, drainage basin, watershed, those terms all mean the same thing in North America. What does a watershed mean? I read that in North America, watershed means the same thing as catchment area. What does a watershed mean outside of North America? Um... I mean, the only time I've come across it was in scientific papers, okay. and they use it for the same thing as, yeah, a basin or so. Um, okay. So that's the only meaning of it I know. I, okay. <laughs> I saw a thing, uh, a reference to outside North America that has a more specific meaning, but they didn't say what that was. Mm. Um, we, should, uh, we should also maybe uh, specify the difference between a forecast and a prediction. Uh Forecast is linked to a specific time frame. So a forecast in two weeks, it's going to rain. A prediction there is not linked to a specific time or time frame. So it 
there's going to be rain. Hmm. Is that right? I actually used those words interchangeably before. So, so you're teaching me something new here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, don't put too much stock in it because I might not be right. <laughs> I'll look into this though. But this, this, the sense that I got was a forecast is linked to a specific time frame and a prediction is not. So a 60% chance of rain is a prediction. A 60% chance of rain this week is a forecast. Okay. Um, and forecasts can be along any time scale, but we typically divide into three kind of time scale categories. There's uh, short-term emergency or tactical time scale, like, oh no, there's a hurricane coming. What is that going to mean for the people of Newfoundland? Second, seasonal, like, it's looking like a dry spring. Do we need more irrigation? Is a seasonal time frame. And strategic long-term time frame, uh, how big does this water reservoir need to be so that it'll have enough water for all the community's needs, even in extreme years, is like a strategic long-term thinking. Or rain is increasing in this area over time. What's that going to mean 10 years from now? Yeah, I would even subdivide this uh, more, I guess. Um, so there is the short term, as you said, so that's usually a few days. And then there is an in-between step, which we call the medium range. Um, so that would be uh, maybe up to 10, 15 days. Okay. And there is also even extended range, which, yeah, roughly a month or so. Um, and then we start going to seasonal. So I don't know if you've heard the term uh, sub-seasonal to seasonal. No. What's that? So that kind of covers between a month to up to a year, usually. Okay. Um, and yeah, then we have the climate range, as you said. So uh, in 10 years, for example. And mostly you work on sub-seasonal to seasonal range. Is that right? Yeah, that is. So you're specifically thinking about, uh, I mean, you're specifically focused on forecasting over the next couple of months, you're not thinking there's a flood coming tomorrow and you're not thinking uh, what's going to happen 20 years from now. No, exactly. Um, anything else you think we need to know to have a, I mean, I, have we now mastered hydro, <laughs> hydrometeorology? We know everything there is to know about it, right? Yeah, I think it was a pretty good uh, overview. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so the, another of your focuses is on stream flow. Um, stream flow uh, is a term that uh, non-experts just might not be aware of what that word means. So as the word implies, stream flow is the flow of water. It especially refers to water that regularly flows in the same place, but that might not always have the same velocity and volume. So we know there's a river Sen, but we don't know how deep or how fast the Sen is unless we, you know, check. Um, water uh, flows faster the fuller the riverbed is until it overflows the banks and then it flows slower. Uh, velocity matters for all kinds of reasons when we're talking about stream flow, the velocity of the water uh, it matters, but one of the, one very practical reason why it matters is because a faster flowing stream causes more erosion and potentially more damage than a slower flowing one. 
and also because one of the simplest ways to predict flooding or drought or uh, the movement of water is by noticing the water level further back along the stream and then correlating that to what the water level is going to be later on in the stream. Then you know how fast the water's flowing and you know when the flood is going to come. That, by the way, is one of the oldest uh, flood forecasting systems, what is in the Seine uh, coming into Paris, that they, uh, two, three hundred years ago, had a system of if the water level reached this point, I don't know the, the place, but if the water level reached this point in the Seine, then there was going to be flooding in Paris, and they didn't have the mathematical model, but they had the correlation. If it gets this high, we know that two days from now, there's going to be flooding in Paris because they know the velocity of the water. They know it's going to take two days for it to get from this point into the city. Yeah. Um, they still use this method, actually, uh, in quite a few places. So I know that in the UK, they still still use these methods uh, as well as in some places in Asia. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it makes sense. Like, it's a... It's a um, reliable method, right? And it, it kind of makes sense that why would you complicate things when you have a method that works well, that's uh, reliable and predictable, uh, and that especially is low cost and low, uh, not just low cost in terms of money, but in terms of resources, people, and like just check if the water's high back on the stream because we know that it's coming here. Right? Yeah, I guess the problem is you can only use it for the next few hours or yes. one day tops probably. Um, and then you don't really know how much rain is going to fall additionally to what you already have. Right. But it does work to a certain extent. Right. Yeah, I guess if you, uh, it's like your, <laughs> your particular focus is how's the weather going to mess with this system though yeah because you might know this water is coming but you don't know hey it's going to rain more so the water is actually going to be higher we thought we were safe because it was below the level but two days ago it's rained since those two days and the water level's gotten higher since we measured it yeah exactly and volume i mean i said why measuring the velocity matters volume matters because more water is more water and less water is less water. That seems pretty straightforward to me. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you think that I'm missing or we're missing about the concept of stream flow? Um, no, I think you've covered everything. And that also nicely links back to the concept of watersheds. Mm -hmm. So we usually look at uh, stream flow within a given watershed, um, at least on my scale, uh, right. people looking People sometimes look uh, more locally and they focus on one specific river, but a lot of people will look at a bigger watershed and what the stream flow does within that bigger watershed. And that's what you do. Yeah. So let's move on to seasonal stream flow forecasting. Um, the current standard method for forecasting stream flow is uh, ensemble stream flow prediction. Mm -hmm. uh, what, that, what that amounts to is using observed historical data and observed current initial hydrological conditions together to forecast what's going to happen. And initial hydrological conditions means right now, 
how much snow is there, how wet is the ground, how what's the volume of the river as it is right now, like the initial conditions and the more data, the better. Yeah. So like, for example, yesterday I had a cup of water and I spilled it on the couch and it was still wet two hours later. <laughs> Last week, I had half a cup of water. I spilled it on the couch and it was still wet one hour later. Today, I have two cups of water and I'm going to forecast whether my pants will be wet when I sit on the couch three <laughs> hours from now. Except with a lot more data yeah. and variables. But that's basically ensemble stream flow prediction. We know what happened in the past and we can use that to predict what's going to happen next. Yeah, I like that analogy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Factors affecting stream flow that we want to take into account are climactic factors, uh, geology, and topography. So geology, everything including uh, the permeability of the ground and the uh, that's all going to affect how the water flows and how much is absorbed into the groundwater and how much moves on. Topography the shape of the land. But climactic fa factors is a factor that hasn't you argue and you, your research focuses on putting a heavier uh, amount of attention on the climate, the climactic factors, that is the weather. Yeah, I guess you could add uh, other factors, which I'm also not really looking at. Um, Okay. But you could add, for example, infrastructure. All right. Um, and then land use as well, um, because we know that water flows differently uh, if it falls on the forests than on the fields with crops, for example. Right. And that um, infrastructure is an interesting one because that's one of the reasons why historical data can sometimes be deceptive because mm -hmm. the historical data from the 50s, like if you go far enough back that the infrastructure has changed, then it become it's no longer reliable, right? Because what was built along the sides of this river isn't the same as what it is now. And so the flow is different then. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so usually people like to use data where there is no big dam, let's say, built on the river. Um, and then they usually have to correct for those things as well to be able to use that data again. Right. In an area or a basin where the hydrological cycle is dominated by geology and topography, an ESP works pretty well. But in a basin where climactic factors dominate the hydrological cycle, an ESP doesn't work as well because we don't know whether it's going to rain this year, month, week, day uh, more than last or less than last time. And that's going to make a big difference to the amount of water that's around. Yeah, exactly. And they, uh, a quote from one of your papers that I think um, summarizes this is the achievable predictability from the ESP depends on the persistence of the initial hydrological conditions, which can vary as a function of the season. If the initial hydrological conditions stay the same, then the ESP works great. But if the if it is really hot and a lot of snow melts, then now there's more water than there was when we measured the initial hydrological conditions. So that and that varies as a function of the season. If it's a warm winter, more snow is melting than 
when we measured this last year and it was a cold winter and less snow melted. And so the measurement, the fact that we know there's two feet of snow when we started isn't going to be helpful if that two feet of snow melts while we're <laughs> in the time frame that we're focused on. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you if you have a, a basin or a watershed with a really large groundwater reservoir that has a lot of water in, and you know how much there is in there, and it, we know that this varies quite slowly compared to what we see on the surface, mm -hmm. then you're going to be pr quite good at predicting uh, what you have in your river in two months, for example. Right. Um, so the solution is know whether it's going to rain in three months. Uh, but that's, you know, easier said than done. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so you pay attention in uh, the what well, the specific paper I'm referring to for this part. And I'll put, by the way, uh, as always, all the research that I did in this week, I'll have a uh, file with a bibliography of everything that I've researched, including uh, Louise's papers that I read while I was preparing. Um, you talk about the North Atlantic Oscillation, which like the better known El Nino is a weather phenomenon. Oscillation, as in up and down, of air pressure in the North Atlantic changes the weather in Europe. So if the North Atlantic Oscillation is high, meaning there's a big difference in air pressure between Iceland and Portugal, then there's lots of westerly wind, which means there's lots of moist air coming into Europe and the summers are cool and the winters are mild and there's lots of rain. And if the NAO differential is low, meaning there's not a lot of difference in the air pressure between Iceland and Portugal, then there's not a lot of westerly wind and that means there's not a lot of moist air and that means summers are warm and winters are cold and there's not a lot of rain. So paying attention to things like the North Atlantic Oscillation can help us predict the amount of water that's going to be in a stream two months from now because we'll be able to predict whether there's going to be a warm, moist uh, summer or a, a warm, cool summer, or a mild, moist winter or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what, I mean, I'm not forecasting the weather myself. I just get this information from other people. Right. Um, but people doing that uh, on seasonal timescales, so trying to forecast the weather in a couple of months, use uh, this information. So their ability or sometimes non-ability to forecast this NAO or other large-scale um, yeah, phenomenons to be able to predict how much water we get uh, in the atmosphere in a couple of months in Europe. Right. And how much water there is in the atmosphere is going to correlate to how much water there is on the surface. Yeah. S seasonal forecasting is getting better. Your particular focus is applying seasonal forecasting to seasonal streamflow forecasting. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's also getting better and has been starting to be used around the world. And your particular, particular focus is applying that in improved forecasting into flood preparedness. Yeah. You did a comparison of ESP to, uh, and once again, ESP, not extrasensory perception, but uh, the ensemble stream flow prediction that uses past data pr to predict what's going to happen next. Um, 
in one of your papers, you've compared an ESP with a climate model-based seasonal stream flow forecast for the same reason, region over the same period using the same data. And this is like a lot of what a, an important step in the science is like, okay, we have this idea that uh, climate information is going to be more helpful. Let's actually test that in practice and see whether it is and how helpful it is and in what ways it's helpful and in what ways it's not as helpful. And uh, so you tested the two over the same time period using the same data in terms of accuracy. Accuracy is how close the forecast was to the truth of what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Sharpness, that's uh, like precision, that's how uh, detailed the prediction is? Yes, so um, one thing actually that we haven't said is that I'm looking at ensemble prediction. So instead of saying the amount is going to be X in a couple of months, we say the amount is going to be between X and Y and is more likely to be Z, for example. Um, so sharpness is basically right. uh, the difference between this uh, X and Y. So the range of the forecast. Right. Okay. So the forecast doesn't... Your, the model doesn't provide a forecast. It provide it doesn't provide a specific forecast <laughs> that would be kind of uh, ridiculous. It provides a range, and the smaller the range, the better. Because I could right now say there's going to be uh, somewhere between zero and ten thousand millimeters of rain in Europe this. Day. Which would be true, yeah. <laughs> and I'd be right, but I would have no sharpness, and so it wouldn't be useful, right? Exactly, yeah, more or less. Um, and then you study uh, reliability. Reliability is basically how repeatable it is. So um, accuracy is how close the forecast was to truth, but reliability is if I do the same forecast again, is it that close to the truth again? Yeah, so it's it's kind of um, being able to measure uh, the occurrence of events the right amount of times. Um, so right. if you have an event that uh, in the observation happens 10% of the time, then in theory, your forecast should get that same amount of times this event. So reliability is focused on uh, not just accuracy, but on like events. How, how what percentage of a time does this system accurately forecast that there's going to be higher than normal water? Yeah, and because we have an ensemble forecast, 10% of your ensemble should be able to pick up an event that happens 10% of the time. Right. Gotcha. Um, performance is the difference between the forecast and observed. So uh, not just was it accurate, but how close to observed was it? Yeah, performance is kind of a general metric. Um, so it looks at how close it was to it, but also how uh, what the spreads of your ensemble was. And then uh, you talk about usefulness. And specifically, you talk about usefulness um, in that for decision-making, 
above average rainfall and below average rainfall is more useful a metric than just how close to accurate. Like you could be off by 10%, but right that it's above average. That might be more useful than off by 5%, but reporting a below average instead of above average. Yeah, and that's something that's um, very specific to uh, seasonal forecasting. Mm -hmm. Because we know that for seasonal forecasting, we can't really get the amount right for uh, in X months. Right. So we know that getting this uh, extreme events is uh, yeah more useful and more probable to get right. <laughs> right. Um, and your finding was that the uh, climate model was more skillful for the first month of lead time uh, only, mostly because this model expects the season to stay the same. So as the seasons change the real, in the real world, the model continues to predict based on the season of, of the initial conditions. Is that right? Yeah, and then it's easier for us to get the weather right uh, for the next month instead of the next seven months. Right. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you still think that seasonal stream flow forecasting could be better and using meteorological variables on seasonal timelines is a way forward and we need to keep on getting better at it. Yeah, definitely. Maybe one thing about the ESP. Okay. Um, so the ensemble stream flow prediction, uh, that's actually, the term is a bit confusing, I find, mm -hmm. because so if you take ensemble stream flow prediction, then it seems like a general term to describe what I do. So right. uh, predicting the stream flow with using an, an ensemble forecast, as I said, so not one forecast uh, number value, but several mm -hmm. different ones. Um, but yeah, it's now used to describe this uh, method that you talked about so like, previously. It would seem like adding more variables, adding climactic variables, still describes ensemble streamflow prediction. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, in theory, ensemble streamflow prediction could be any of those two methods I used in my paper. But it doesn't. But it describes just one. <laughs> it's the specific one that is being used. It's like it uh, was begun in the 50s, is that right? Yeah, exactly, in the US. Right. And it's still used there quite a lot for uh, reservoir management because it works so well in some of the basins. Right. What, like, what makes the difference between a basin that is uh, dependent on uh, geography and topology, topography and a basin that's dependent on the climate? Like, is that an aspect of the climate? Is that an aspect of a basin where there isn't a lot of vari variance in uh, the climate? Or is that an aspect of the topography? <laughs> yeah, a bit, a mix of everything, actually. Um, so it has to do with the location of the basin, I guess. So um, if your basin, for example, is somewhere close to the sea, then you can imagine that it's going to be affected by all the rain that comes in from the sea, for example. Um, right. But then if you have one inland, then it might be less affected by those uh, big weather fronts that come in. Um, then it also depends on what type of geology you have. So if your basin is made of uh, 
quite hard rock on which the water just just flows and then gets out of your basin via the river channel, for example, then you won't have much water stored in the ground. So you won't have much memory of this water. Um, but if hmm. your rock uh, can absorb quite a lot of water, then knowing how much water there is in the ground is actually a valuable information. Uh, and of course, mm. it depends also if you have uh, mountains or so on. So lots of things. <laughs> I imagine, I'm thinking, I imagine it must be pretty easy to predict and forecast the stream flow in the middle of the Sahara Desert uh, and much harder to predict it in, say, Amsterdam. Um, I don't know actually. Well, in the desert, you would probably have these, uh, I don't know, really instantaneous kind of events, I guess. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure about the Sahara, but for example, in uh, Australia, I know that you have these uh, areas that are dry 90% of the year or more, and then you have sudden rainfall events that just cover the whole area with water, and these are really hard to predict, but. Hmm. You really have to predict those because they affect a lot of people if they live in that area. Right. Um, in Amsterdam, actually, or in the Netherlands, it's probably quite easy to predict <laughs> how the water flows because it's controlled. <laughs> right. So I'm exactly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it is quite a lot easier to predict what happens in larger basins, at least on seasonal timescales especially because you have all of this groundwater uh, memory in there. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> I'm, exactly, I'm exactly wrong. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, partly why I said that is I was partly, why I said Amsterdam came to my head is just I was thinking about how you did your uh, MSc in Amsterdam and it made me think that if you're studying hydrology, a place where there's so many canals and... yeah must be useful place to do that study. That's true. But I didn't think of the obvious that, well, that means it's controlled and actually easier yeah. to predict than, uh, <laughs> than when it's not. I, the, the interest in Amsterdam was that they were missing data from uh, partners in uh, the surrounding countries like France, hmm. uh, for example. And so if you don't have this data, then it's quite difficult to know what happens at the boundary between your country and that other country. Right. Um, so that's why the European flood awareness system is really important because before flood forecasting was done individually for the different countries, but then they realized that actually basins or watersheds are not limited to specific countries, right. but they cross those countries. <laughs> Go bigger. Yeah, we also need Amazing. to do flood forecasting over different countries. At the same time. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> Who would have predicted that? <laughs> <laughs> You've also done some work on uh, quantifying the prediction skill of various approaches. So a sensitivity analysis technique. So research researchers can know whether a forecast model is working better or worse than another model and put more resources, resources into what's working. Mm -hmm. People 
have used meteorological variables on seasonal streamflow forecasting in the tropics, but not so much in temperate Europe. One of the things you're especially interested in, it seems to me, is connecting some dots. So we have the meteorological knowledge to be able to forecast the weather uh, more than has been applied uh, to forecast streamflow in Europe specifically. Yeah. And when it's used, there's not enough of a clear and predictable connection between meteorological and hydrological events. That is, we might know it's going to rain, but we haven't done enough to translate what that rain is going to mean for the velocity and level of water in the Thames. Mm -hmm. And even more specifically, uh, you're interested in flood forecasting. And I know that like flood forecasting isn't actually uh, the focus of your research, but when I like both in your scientific papers and also in the kinds of things that you do in your sci art, it seems to me like flood uh, forecasting is a particular interest of yours specifically. Am I right? Yes. Um, that's partly because at the ECMWF, I work in the Euro for the European Flood Awareness System. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so the focus of our team is on floods in Europe. Uh, and then there is also a team looking at global floods. Um, so that's why I'm trying to put a bit of floods in my research as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> so being able to more skillfully forecast streamflow has a lot of applications like reservoir management, drought management, navigation, irrigation, hydropower. But uh, the one you're uh, focusing on, especially because of your, what you just said, the E F do the European Flood Management EFM EFASES so European Flood Awareness System Awareness System yeah EFAS because of your work with the EFAS you're particularly interested in flood forecasting partly also because that's an application that you think hasn't been as fully explored yet as it should be. Flood forecasting, as we've kind of mentioned already, isn't actually that hard on a short time frame. Time frame. Like it's pretty easy to say a flood is coming 10 minutes from now. Harder, but still pretty elementary, is to say it's coming in a few hours. Like we see the, the water comes into from one place to another place and we can see it's coming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even it takes five days on average for melting snow to travel from the Alps to the Netherlands. So five days is like, hmm. you know, we can, we can have a pretty good sense. Yeah. But what is extremely difficult is forecasting a flood two months, 10 months ahead of time or a drought. Uh, but if you can reliably forecast the weather, then you should be able to reliably forecast the stream flow. And if you can reliably forecast the stream flow, you should be able to reliably forecast floods. And if you can forecast a flood months before it happens, uh, you can make better decisions about how to react to that flood. Decisions that aren't emergencies or based purely on urgency, but are like, we have some time to prepare to build, as you said, build flood walls to move resources around because the more lead time we have to prepare the basically the better the decisions are going to be. Yeah. Is there anything you think that we went by too quickly or are missing about flood forecasting and stream flow forecasting 
So just about this last note, yeah, it's it would be ideal to be able to forecast floods seasons ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you've shown, it is quite difficult because of all these factors and because we're not yet able to really say what the weather will be in a couple of months. Right. So yeah, but there is definitely an interest in being able to do that. You talk about um, hind casting. And that's something that, again, that people might not be aware of. But a hindcast is like a forecast, but backwards. <laughs> so you enter known data from previous years into the model and then see if the model predicts, if what the model predicts matches what actually happened. And this is like a lot of the way that you uh, compare one model to another is not with forecasting, but with hindcasting, where you already know what actually happened. Yeah, exactly. And that way... You don't have to wait seven months to see what is going to happen. You can do the research on what has happened in the real world already and compare it to a, as many as you want to different models of prediction. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, it's also very useful if you want to look at a case study that happened in the past. So you can look at a flood that happened, let's say, two years ago and then run your hindcasts for that flood and say, okay, how well did we pick this up actually? Hmm. Um, or how well could we have picked this up if you improve your system in between? Right. Yeah, so the system's improved. You have something that didn't get caught. Yeah. didn't get, uh, the forecasting wasn't as useful as it might have been. You could say like now, with this system, we could have forecasted it and etc. Yeah, exactly. That's how forecasters usually de- develop their system. So they make improvements mm-hmm. to the mathematical equations and so on. And then after that, they tested for a couple of years in the past uh, to see how well we could have done. Uh, and then they say, right, these improvements are good. So we'll run now the forecast for the future. Right. You can do reliability testing uh, because you don't have to wait to see whether your predictions are going to match the future. Yeah. You can check whether your predictions match the past. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. So I want to shift a little bit then to SciArt. You've recently started to devote more and more energy to science communication and specifically to science art or SciArt. I especially, as I said, I especially like the video you made where you describe your research and you made it with your mom and she paints your re- yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Um, I think, I gather that art has a personal, emotional and family meaning for you. You have said your mom's an artist, your grandmother was an artist. Is? Is, yeah. I don't know. But it seems to me that practically speaking, SciArt is a useful component of science communication. That is, you want non-specialists to know and understand your research, so you have to make it interesting and accessible, and art is one way of doing that. Yeah, definitely. It's also a very good uh, practice for me to be able Mm -hmm. to explain what I do in uh, other terms or without using any words, but Mm. just showing what I mean. It seems to me like hydrological forecasting is maybe even more important to communicate to the public than most kinds of science, because the point of forecasting is to inform decision making. Mm -hmm. If the public, and especially if the people who make the decisions, don't know and understand your research, 
then no one will make better decisions based on it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It doesn't actually matter if you're right if no one understands what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't matter if they understand if they don't care. So SciArt's not just, I think, an avenue of personal fulfillment. I think it's part of science communication, which is a component to what makes science relevant to people. Yeah. And get them more involved, definitely. Yeah. You did this uh, project, it was like, a, oh, I didn't write down, but um, it was like a, what you specifically did was made, had worked with kids and did a bunch of drawings of rivers and then glued them all together oh, yeah. to make a big river. That was in the yeah. context of a bigger thing. What was that? Yeah, so that was uh, an event in Reading. In Reading. Uh, so it's uh, it's very difficult to pronounce this term. The university <laughs> big band event or so. Um, yeah, and so basically they asked uh, several persons at university to showcase what research we're doing, uh, but especially for families with kids. So uh, we basically showed what we did uh, at university, so our research about flood forecasting and so on, and uh, asked kids to draw a river, basically. So that was the name of the activity, Draw Me a River. <laughs> and it was really, really cool. It was great to draw with kids, but also to see what kind of rivers they drew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did you, I mean, like, what kind of rivers did they draw? Well, that's the thing. So some of them were really magical with unicorns, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, but some kids drew rivers with quite a lot of uh, vegetation, lots of trees, grass, nature around. Some kids drew lots of houses around. So I think it's quite interesting to see how kids view the landscape around rivers. Mm -hmm. And then you put them all together to form one great big river. Yeah. That was really neat. Oh, and we also had a few kids drawing uh, floods, actually. That was cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now it's time for peer review or... I tried my best, but I still do not understand. These are some questions that came up while I was uh, researching that I don't understand and maybe you can help me with. Um, the first one is, I said way early that the global hydrological system is closed. Is it though? <laughs> <laughs> like no water evaporates into space? Well. Go ahead. Um, I mean, I've never researched it myself, um, but it's probably not 100% closed. Um, right. So I think there might be, when, when you use those uh, water balance equations, there is usually an additional little factor that accounts for everything we don't know about <laughs> right. that might get lost somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Just seems to me that like, Part of the deal with hydrological systems is that you try not to dismiss things as negligible because even small changes in the amount of water in a subsystem can have big impacts. So, like, mm -hmm. I've just it just struck me that like the global system is closed, but like, is it though? <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> um, another question I had, uh, I get about the North Atlantic Oscillation. 
I get, I think, what it is, but what causes oscillation in the pressure in the North Atlantic? Mm, that is a very good question. <laughs> so uh, I've never really studied meteorology myself. Right. So I'm not sure. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I just, none of the things that I researched in my week told me, it, they described it, but none of them told me what makes that happen. But if pressure yeah. is changing, there, there's got to be a reason for that. Yeah. Maybe a uh, meteorologist would be the person to talk to about that. <laughs> yeah, maybe for the next podcast. Maybe. <laughs> um, what? Here's another question, though. What do you think is the pro-con breakdown of data-driven forecasting methods versus process-driven methods? Mm. So what do you mean by that exactly? <laughs> Sorry. I mean, like when I look up, I see uh, some forecasting methods that are like black box methods. We have a mathematical yeah. formula. We know what the data is. We put the data in and it's, the math spits out an answer on the other side. Yeah. And we believe that the model is right and we don't really care what's going on in the model. Mm -hmm. And then there's some methods that are like, we know the physics of how water works and we're using the process of what we know about physics to make a prediction. Mm -hmm. And I think I gather, I would imagine that in practice, everyone, you know, has some kind of balance between mm -hmm. those, but what is the balance on those two kind of approaches to forecasting, do you think? Well, so, I mean, uh, specifically for uh, seasonal stream flow forecasting, um, a lot of people are using these uh, statistical methods rather than the ones I'm using where you have your hydrological model and then you put data in and it spits data out. Um, and mm -hmm. actually the statistical methods are faster to run so that's one advantage, especially mm -hmm. if you want to make a forecast for the next couple of months. Um, and they are actually quite good uh, for seasonal stream flow prediction. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm focusing on the model-based ones. And I think that they usually get, so they get a better understanding of uh, the physics behind the movement of water uh, on Earth, especially. Um, so they get this better. Now, they're not currently better than the statistical forecasts, right. um, at least most of them. But I think the way forward is to keep on improving those two because they can probably learn things from each other, mm. those two methods. I don't think we should just focus on one and chuck the other one away. Right. <laughs> I mean, I have a friend who's an engineer. Uh, who said uh, when he was taking an engineering course at university, you know, told a story about someone going to the professor and saying, look, I did all the work right. I just made, uh, like, I wrote the number down wrong at the end, but all my work is right. Mm. And the engineering professor said, I don't care whether your work is right. I care whether you get the right answer. <laughs> I don't care if you guess. If your answer is right, you're right. If your answer is wrong, the bridge is still going to fall down. Right? <laughs> uh, I thought that was an extreme position. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, 
I mean, I guess it doesn't matter if you're not trying to improve yourself. Mm. So if you get uh, a wrong forecast and you know that it comes from a black box, then you don't really have any information on how you could improve it because you don't know where you got right. wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's one. Yeah, I guess that's also one pro of knowing exactly what the processes are in your forecasting chain, because you can then decide to improve this or that part, which don't seem to work very well. And that comes to like why it's worthwhile to spend so much attention on a method that doesn't work as well, because yeah. it will work better. And you can't improve the black box method without the process, right? Yeah, exactly. That leads me a bit to another question, which is, how can hindcasts be accurate when data isn't? Um, and especially in relation to floods, where data collection is like practically very difficult because of things like the domino effect, where floods go along with increased sediment in the water, which mm -hmm. increases the water density, which change and with it a change in sh the stream bed through gouging, which lowers the bed, or sediment deposit, which raises it, <laughs> and then the culverts and weirs get damaged by floods, and then bridges and roads get damaged, so field workers can't be physically present during the flood as they are during a low-level stream flow, and all of this means that historical data in extreme occasions can't possibly be accurate, can it? Yeah, that's true. Uh, we do have a way around it when we do forecasting, though. <laughs> We're quite cheeky. What? Um, what is that? So basically, just like what I used in my paper, I didn't use uh, observed data per se. So what we called okay. observed data is essentially some observed data that is passed through the same hydrological model. And you get something out of it, which you use as your proxy for observation. So okay. if I'm looking at streamflow, what I would do is take my observed rainfall, temperature, evaporation on that day, pass it through my model so it knows how to uh, distribute this water through the model. And then it gives me a streamflow that is a proxy for the observed streamflow. Um, so I basically look at everything in the modeled world and nothing in the observed world. Right. <laughs> but if, but, okay but, I, I, <laughs> but if the model isn't accurate it'll seem like it is won't it yes it will <laughs> but that's not my task <laughs> <laughs> gotcha <laughs> So this is the different uh, type of uh, hydrology well, that you mentioned earlier. So some people are responsible for doing the forecasting and others are responsible for doing the modeling. So that is making sure that your hydrological model is as accurate as possible to what is actually right. observed on Earth. And that's their, that's their problem. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, Another question about, uh, which is, is there a point of diminishing returns for streamflow forecasting? Like, would knowing about a flood three years ahead of time be practically any more useful than knowing about it three months ahead of time? Is there a point at which, like, mm. 
I guess it, or is it forever any better is better? I guess it really depends on the scale of the event, on the magnitude, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. So if you really had a big flood event that you had never experienced before, then I guess knowing quite a lot of months in advance would be useful, especially if you have to uh, build, for example, in the Thames, if we had to build the Thames barrier to better protect uh, the city from floods, then we would have to know quite a long time in advance because I guess this this takes a lot of time to make sure the Thames barrier is uh, good to work. <laughs> right. Um, but if you have a small flood happening, um, yeah, I think knowing it a few months in advance would already be great. Hmm. Um, hmm. And this is where, like, okay, I'm, uh, I said in, in my, an email I sent to you, we talked about a little bit, uh, I'm thinking of having a, a mini season of Halfway Expert that's focused on or tangentially connected to climate science. Yeah. Um, and you said your uh, focus, your your time scale is not uh, directly climate uh, science. It's because it's a more short time frame than what climate scientists typically are focused on. Mm -hmm. The difference between what you do in climate science is in terms of scale and time frame. Yeah. Right. But you're talking here about uh, you just started talking about weather events that have never happened before. So it seems like uh, there is a real clear connection to the kind of research you're doing and uh, more strictly speaking, climate science. Yeah, I mean, seasonal is kind of regarded as a step towards climate. Um, and I guess that yeah, every extreme event is different from the other. Mm. So, and we know that there is going to be more in the future. So uh, with a larger magnitudes more often, uh, and they're also going to be happening in places where they haven't happened before. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm not looking at the specific change, let's say, but it is going towards climates, what I do. You'd be working at, you, were, you weren't looking at the specific change, but your research would specifically be useful for how to deal with that change when it happens. Yeah, I guess. And that's also why having these um, more dynamical systems to forecast is quite useful. So if you have these uh, statistical methods and values, then you know that these might change with time, actually. So, so this black box we we're talking about, mm. so the black box, which might work 100% now, might not work in a couple of years either. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> Another question, which is, do you think that there is a problem in hydrology publishing? Because uh, I read a lot when I was reading around, I read an editorial in one of the journals that you published in that uh, said demand for publication keeps increasing, especially for PhD students. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a worry that this leads to what the editors of this journal call salami, uh, salami science, where scientists divide essentially the same study or insight into a number of articles so they can publish more, oh. which then decreases the scientific value of each of these publications. And like these... Do you think that that's a, 
something to be worried about? Um, I think it's probably a good thing, though, to keep paper short. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. yeah, I think having one paper that mentions a whole range of results is probably not so efficient. Uh, but I can see, hmm. yeah, I can see that there could be a problem uh, with that as well. But, yeah, I don't see it as a problem per se. <laughs> I've never thought about it, actually. <laughs> you like, you're a, um, I, did, I said at the beginning you're a PhD candidate. To be clear, are you a PhD candidate or a PhD student? Um, what's the difference? <laughs> I don't know. If you've finished coursework and exams, you're a candidate. If you haven't yet, you're a student. That's at least how it works in uh, humanities in North America. I don't know if there's that distinction is unique yeah. now that I say it. I never had uh, coursework and exams. <laughs> okay, so that makes it a meaningless distinction. <laughs> um, but some people do have to pass a few exams and take and follow some courses. Uh, I didn't have to. I just followed a few courses, especially in metrology, for my own interest. Um, right. But never had to. So I don't know what I would be called then. So I think <laughs> I think candidate is the is the uh, clearest term because okay. student imply. I mean, student really implies you're in classes. Yeah, and that's true. Taking exams and okay. Anyway. Uh, Good to know. <laughs> just curious. <laughs> um, but I know in my, uh, when I was doing my PhD, um, there is an awful lot of pressure, not just to do research, but to publish it, right? Like the high uh, emphasis on publication. There's been, people have complained, like people have complained, just like PhD students have complained that like this mm. makes my life hard. <laughs> but also scientists have complained that like, the emphasis on you have to publish a whole certain number of papers to be viable as a, to be seen as a viable scholar, but that maybe puts a pressure on both journals and on scientists and on students uh, to like, it doesn't matter the quality of the publication, yeah. just the quantity. Yeah. That's, that's not the right? good way to go. I think. Um, I think, I mean, as long as people are clear that quality is better than quantity and understand that it is important to publish, uh, then that's fine, I think. But if they really have a pressure to publish, I don't know, X number of paper to be able to pass their PhD, for example, I don't think that is the right way to go. Um, I do think it is an important skill to have right. to be able to publish papers. Because I, I find it um, mm -hmm. quite important to know how to present your results and make a coherent storyline just for yourself to be able to present your result, results in a nice storyline. Um, right. But, yeah, publishing a predefined number of papers doesn't make sense, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> <laughs> um I have a question about science communication. Yeah. Uh, and that basically is, how important do you think science communication is? Very. Maybe that's a very broad question. <laughs> like, 
Yeah, how important is science communication and why? I think it's extremely important. I mean, as you said, in hydrology, but not only. Uh, so there are decisions ma made at the end of the line that do affect the public in some way. Uh, so being able to communicate why what you do is important and what it is about and so on is really important because then the public understands what you do and why, and then might also be able to feedback uh, on what would be most useful to look at or things like this. Um, it's also, a, I know, a human skill to have, I think, to be able to communicate to mm -hmm. any type of person what you're doing. Um, so I think it should be included uh, more at university because a lot of the people might be mm. extremely skilled at uh, writing papers, uh, scientific papers about their research, for example, and they're great papers. But then it's also really important to be able to explain what you're doing to a more layback person. I wonder whether there, I mean, in the United States, especially, which isn't where I live, I'm I'm in Canada. But in the United States, especially, we talk, we hear about uh, crisis in mm. public faith in science. That a lot of uh, policy is being made without much regard for science. Yeah, and I wonder if there's uh, even more important emphasis necessary on science communication in that political climate yeah yeah no that's definitely true um and then a lot of the science is funded uh publicly as well mm -hmm. um and so we really have to show all right you're giving us this money but it is important for this and that which concerns you in this and that way so yeah that what? is very true <laughs> yeah i have another question when I spoke to Stephanie Hollenhofer about archaeology, I asked her if archaeology was a science or not. Going into talking to you, I did not expect to have any ambiguity. Hydrometeorology is a science, but <laughs> uh, is hydrology an art? Some people say it is, actually. Um, mm. I guess that's the same in all sciences, though. You have a part of imagination that helps you do the science. Um, and some people say that imagination is an art in some way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would be happy to call hydrology a science and art. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me here on Halfway Expert. Yeah, um, thanks for inviting me. It's been really great. Before I sign off on this episode of Halfway Expert, I want to issue a few corrections to last episode of Halfway Expert. Actually, I say a few, but I only have one in mind, and that is that I said in episode one of Halfway Expert with archaeologist Stephanie Holmhofer, I said that Richard II was buried under a parking garage. Actually, no, it was Richard III who was found buried under a parking garage. If you notice any errors from this episode of Halfway Expert or the previous one, let me know and I will correct them. 
Thank you for joining us on Halfway Expert. If you like this show, please rate and review it. That will help other people to find it, and that will be a big deal to me. You can follow me on Twitter, at HalfExpert, and you can email me, HalfwayExpert, at gmail.com, and I would be happy to hear feedback of any kind that you have, including but, but not limited to corrections and suggestions of future experts to be on the show. If you have an expertise that you would like to talk to me about on Halfway Expert, it does not need to be scientific. It does not even need to be academic. Send me an email and I will schedule you as a guest on a future episode of Halfway Expert. If you like this show and you want it to continue to exist, please support it on Patreon at patreon.com clockworkscast. That will support this podcast and the other podcasts that I make. In the show notes to this episode, you will find a bibliography of all the research that I did in my week of study, as well as a bibliography from Louise of five texts that will help you get a handle on her field if you'd like to know more. So thank you one more time to uh, Louise. And where can people find and follow you and your work? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter. Uh, so my handle is Louise, And on there, there is also a link to my blog post. So the one about science and art and the science and art of predicting floods more specifically. So you can have a look at that to see uh, what new science and art I'm doing. Uh, and I'm right now actually working on a science and art piece for my PhD. So it's going to be uh, judged basically alongside all my scientific papers at the end. <laughs> so yeah, um, look at this page for more news about that and how it's coming along. <laughs> all right. Well, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Merci. Au revoir. <laughs> Au revoir. I've been Dr. Paul Moffat. Trust me, I'm an expert. <laughs>